The Saskatchewan Healthcare Coalition is hosting the All for Public Healthcare Rally in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, May 4th. It's free and you're invited. This rally is happening because our public healthcare system does not have the support it needs to meet the diverse needs of all Saskatchewan residents. For years, it has been underfunded, ignored, and hindered. So join Donna and I in person on May 4th in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan for a walk, speeches, networking, and community building. Link for more information is in the show notes. Hope to see you there. We get into this work because we want to help, but it's rough. Jamie Sinclair was a supported living house manager in the Lower East Side of Vancouver. I had one gentleman who thought that the CIA had put a chip in his head. And so the way he would get rid of it was setting his hair on fire. I had one individual who went to the hospital and he said, like, I'm going to kill myself. And they turned him away. So he walked across the Granville Street Bridge and he jumped off. Today, she shares her experiences to shed light on the urgent need for change. First responders and police would come into my building and they would say to me, I could never do your job. There's this whole new generation of trauma that's being created with frontline workers that people aren't seeing. What's up, everybody? My name is Dan, full-time podcaster, public speaker and advocate. And I talked to Jamie about her experiences, how she got through it and what she thinks could change to better support our frontline workers right here on Hard Knocks Talks, your addictions podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Is there, uh, is, is there anything that you'd like to say before we jump in? Thanks for having me. That's it? That's it. Okay, let's go. This okay. is Hard Knocks Talks. Okay, if you are struggling with the substance use of a loved one or have tragically lost a loved one to drug-related harms, reach out to Stronger Together Canada, peer-led support groups by Mum Stop the Harm. If you are in search of private inpatient addictions treatment, check out Prairie Sky Recovery Centre located in Libsig, Saskatchewan. If you are looking for help with criminal record suspensions, the Elizabeth Fry Society of Saskatchewan covers all associated costs for women or gender-diverse individuals to apply for criminal record suspensions. Reach out to Chelsea at 306 668 Three five to make contact. To learn more about all of today's sponsors, to uh, check out our merch, or if you want to show us some love and buy us a coffee, all of those links are in the show notes below. So tell us a little bit about your experiences uh, running these houses and 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 some of the things that you've learned along the way. So about six and a half years ago, um, I had I'd worked in private healthcare in management for about twenty years. Mm -hmm. And at the age of 41, I decided to quit my cushy job and go back to university. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Terrifying, because I was old and I hadn't been in school for, I don't know, 20 years. I did that too. And I know how terrifying it is. The first month I was in school, my hands and my feet were like sweating, like, like right? just to show up in class. Like I thought my brain was cooked. Did you think your brain was cooked? Oh, it was. Um, <laughs> Confirmed. No, it absolutely was. So I had applied for this program. And, you know, one of the things that I find when you stop using substances and try and like reintegrate, there's so many barriers set up. Um, and a lot of the programs that I applied for said I had to prove that I had like two plus years of quote unquote clean time. I hate that word or sobriety. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, this is kind of bullshit because if we go with the disease model, um, if I had cancer and now I'm in remission, would I require a doctor's note? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I'd applied for this program and I was declined admission. Um, you needed a master's degree, which I don't have. 
Mm -hmm. um, and five years direct experience with either a private practice and or other things. They told me no. <laughs> Once you get to know me, like that word is like, oh, that's an opportunity to oh. get them to not say no. Yeah. So I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to the admissions department, the registrar's office, and let them know why I should be admitted. Hang on a second. <laughs> what was this course for again? So it was to do a postgraduate in addiction and mental health. Okay. So you needed so five years of experience in the field before you could go to school to learn the things that you wanted to do in the field. Correct. Because mm. this, is this was for people who already had a master's degree who wanted to further their education. Uh. None of the other programs, the low-level programs, none of them would let me in because mm. I couldn't prove that I had two years of anything. I had like fucking two months maybe. Anyways, long story short, they admitted me into the program. And I got my assignments and I was just like, holy shit, there's no way I should be in this. Mm. My they first were right. Card, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, holy cow. Okay, I see, I see, I get it now. Anyways, so I started doing this program and I started really on the ground level. So I was doing street outreach um, in the downtown east side. Mm -hmm. I was working in a program for moms who had babies who were born in addiction. I worked in shelters. I sort of, my end game was to be in management. But mm -hmm. I don't believe that anyone should ever be in management until they've done all the jobs. You have yeah. you have no business leading a team unless you've done the work. Now you have you have a history uh rife with, with substance use. Is that that is safe to say, I, agreed? Oh absolutely. And and we're yeah. gonna talk, I mean, and we're gonna go back into all of that. But what I'm curious to know is that with all of the experiences that you've had, and there's been some different different abuses, different behaviors, different things that you've experienced, and I'm sure that you came face to face with those same behaviors when you're doing outreach. How did you deal with that? Just like coming into uh, a new life free from substances. Now you're on the street right. and you're without them, but you're still surrounded by it. I think that can go either way for people and i've seen that and mm -hmm. i advocate for that now because i've been around for you know the last six years doing this work um for me it was a daily reminder of how grateful i was to be free of substances um seeing people you know in that absolute survival mode of you know your next fix um so being free of that and seeing it every day, day in and day out, it didn't make me want it. It made me grateful that I wasn't living that life anymore because that's like being buried alive. Mm -hmm. Now, you you mentioned that you you moved up, right? Uh, and, and you I, wanted to experience all of the different roles in these organizations. Now, when we're talking about uh, supported living, like we're talking about people who are just coming skidding in and, and you know what that likes. What's that? What that's like to come skidding in. So where did you struggle the most then? So the building that I took over, um, if you ask people in Vancouver, anyone who's worked in this industry, when I say the building that I ran, their first response is they don't believe me. Are you allowed to um, say the name? I'm not going to. 
just out of respect for the residents, um, mm. you know, when I talk about it in their privacy, but I can tell you that, so the building I was running was owned by BC Housing. Um, it was over a hundred years old. It was an old hotel. It, it was falling apart at the seams. It was Is it pretty famous? Rats. Is it in Gabor Mate's book, Realm of Hungry Ghosts? Mm, not you... this one, but Gabor, he would know the building. Okay. Um, and I work in all the buildings now. So okay. in my new role, so I like, I know all the buildings in Vancouver. Now we're Anyways, playing like so a game of Clue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is it blue? So my, my building had the highest percentage of individuals who were living with extreme mental health issues that were supposed to be managed in community with concurrent substance misuse disorder. So my building, imagine 100 people who could have a diagnosis such as schizoaffective that was also smoking a lot of crack um it was it was soul draining um you know our system is so broken and i fought so hard for my residents there was you know i think the biggest thing that people miss when you know they make comments like oh they should just get a job or they should just quit using drugs or or i had an entire floor of youth in my building aged 19 to 24, um, you know, these kids grew up with trauma that most people could never relate to um, and, you know, mental health issues. And you try and get these people connected to, you know, mental health teams to help them manage in community. And you have, you know, people who are sectioned under the Mental Health Act. So they're, you know, they're struggling so much that They've been sectioned. However, the person who's responsible for their care have 80 other people like that. So when I tell you people would literally set themselves on fire, I'm not exaggerating. Um, Why would they set I themselves on fire? Because their mental health was so bad. I had one gentleman who thought that the CIA had put a chip in his head. And so the way he would get rid of it was setting his hair on fire. Um, you know, I had people who would self-refer to emerge. I had one individual who, you know, he he was pretty self-aware and he went to the hospital and he said, like, I'm going to kill myself. And they turned him away. So he walked and he walked across the Granville Street Bridge and he jumped off. Um, mm -hmm. So I saw that kind of stuff day in and day out. I saw, like, it's it still haunts me. Um, you know, I had people who would come into my office and they're like, you know, Jay, I'm ready. I don't want to live this life anymore. I need help. And mm -hmm. I would get on the phone and like, I have connections. So I would get on the phone and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I've got this person sitting here with me right now. Do you have a bed? 99% of the time there's no bed and they die waiting. Yeah. Um, I sat with more people than anyone should waiting for the coroner to come, you know? And then, you, you know, you're, you're working with your, there's this whole new generation of trauma that's being created with frontline workers that people aren't seeing. Um, you know, we talk about first responders, they've got it rough, but you know, first responders and police would come into my building and they would say to me, I could never do your job. Your job is way more dangerous than mine. Um, 
you know, for reference, it's hard to see, but I'm 5'4 and maybe 100 pounds soaking wet. And I was running one of the most dangerous buildings in Vancouver. Hmm. Um, but we we see the stuff first that leads us to calling 911. Um, and there's not enough support. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose part of the trauma that comes with all of that frontline work is not only witnessing the things going on, but seeing firsthand how these things could be more preventable if a little more oh, resources absolutely. were available. Absolutely. And I was just talking on Friday with, with my friend Chantel about uh, social workers and uh, how working for yeah. the, the Ministry of Social Services and, and how um, social workers, they, they want to help. Like they, they start doing social work because they want to help people. They want to serve community. They want to make this world a better place. And then they go and work in these frameworks where they simply are not allowed to feel. They're not allowed to say certain things. They're not allowed to, to build relationships past a certain place. And, and they just, they break. And that's, that's oh, why absolutely. there's so much recidivism, right? My my best friend is a social worker, um, and she worked in a program with moms and kids who were under ministry supervision. And, you know, she recounted to me a day where there was three little boys, and they all had different dads, like no judgment. That was just the situation. Mm-hmm. And ministry had, you know, put in removal and my best friend had to help separate these three little boys. They were like five, four, five, and six. And these kids are physically holding on to each other, hysterical screaming. And she's having to rip that, physically rip them apart. That was her last day there. She was like, Jay, I can't, like, I can't, like, you know, we get into this work because we want to help, but it's rough. Yeah. So, Let's take a, a bit of a break from that and we'll come back to it. But yeah. let's take a bit of a break from that. Tell us a little bit about why you got into this. I know, like, tell us a bit about your story. I was in psychosis and I was living in this place that no one should live in. It was like basically like it was like a cave, like underground. It was disgusting. I didn't have heat. Um, my legs had stopped working, so I couldn't get to the bathroom. Um, I remember the liquor store, (laughs) good old delivery. Mm -hmm. They would deliver alcohol to me and I couldn't stand, but they would pass the the payment terminal to me on the ground. um, And I would tap that way. Mm -hmm. My mom, my family, I didn't have any contact with them. I didn't have any contact with friends. I remember my mom used to send me every once in a while, there would be um, a taxi would deliver some food to my house. I know it was her. And... It was my brother and my mom who they found me and I was disgusting. But the cops had come quite a few times because I would call the police and I would tell them things like, I kept saying there was this woman and this German shepherd in my house and they were trying to attack me. Mm. There was no German shepherd. There was no dog. So they would pick me up and they would take me to emerge they would hold me for a couple days and, you know, send me home. So I went through that for probably about six months. Um, So my brother and my mom found me. They dropped me off at the drunk tank. Mm -hmm. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night on the floor on a mat with a bunch of people who were, you know, unhoused. Mm -hmm. And they walked me up to detox in the morning and, um, I wasn't even wearing a bra. Like I had this shirt on that was like, it was, it was fucking awful. 
and detox tried to send me home and I just kept saying no I'm not leaving they're like well you gotta go and I'm like no I don't and I'm not going to mm -hmm. before going there I knew I was dying like I was projectile vomiting blood 24 hours a day and I was relieved I was relieved I was dying because I hated myself I hated what I was doing to my friends and family um you know, thank God made wasn't offered back then to people in addiction because What's I probably made? would have taken them the medically assisted in dying program that they're now going to offer to people in addiction. Um, what do you think about that? Anyway, I don't think it should be offered to people in addiction. Hmm. My personal opinion is that if they would have offered it to me back then, when I'm being admitted to emerge and I already want to die and a doctor tells me basically you're so broken and you have this incurable disease. So here we'll help you. you we, we can help you get this over with. That's really sad because I might've taken them up on that. And I have a brilliant life today. Like, you know, yeah. I, I'm at a point in my life where I can actually say like, I mean, I'm definitely a work in progress, but I'm pretty proud of how far I've come and the work that I've done and the relationship that I have with my kids. And mm -hmm. I, I think that paints a, a pretty, uh, I, I think you are now qualified <laughs> to, <laughs> to talk about your experiences in, uh, in, in moving into service provision now. So let's talk about, again, what you're doing now um, and, and, like you, we already talked a little bit about what it was like coming into that. How do you use your lived experience as a, like, are you still frontline or have you, have you, you're not doing that anymore now? Yes and no. Okay. Um, so I work with an organization um, that specializes in overdose technologies. So I work educating, you know, housing providers, all of the levels of government. So our companies partnered with mental health and substance use, um, provincial health authority. I work educating them on our technologies, but then my favorite part of my job is I get to go into all of these supportive housing buildings and I get to hang out with the residents and I get to spend time with them and give them tools. I think for me, you know, we talk about harm reduction. So in supportive housing buildings, we hand out, you know, the party bag, which is safe supplies, um, harm reduction tools. We mm -hmm. sometimes have overdose prevention rooms, but nobody uses them. I get to give them something that's simple to use. And I say to them, you know, you can use this or you don't like don't. I'm literally giving you this because I don't want you to die. There's no mm -hmm. reason that someone has to find you in 24 hours from now dead. Mm -hmm. Like, just don't. Yeah. Use in your room. That's fine. That's cool. Just don't die on us, please. When you came out of treatment and you had found sobriety in this, this beautiful little life that you'd worked so fucking hard on, and you came into yeah. a place where people were like, we need to have supervised consumption sites and we need to have a safe supply. And I don't even like using the term safe supply because even the regulated stuff isn't safe. Alcohol is like the worst of all of them and it's heavily regulated. So mm -hmm. I, I tend to say regulated supply and I see like you're nodding your head like you agree with me. But what were your thoughts? Like when you came into what would call sobriety, abstinence, whatever, and you saw all this, what were your thoughts? First thoughts, honest to God. 
have some fairly strong opinions on harm reduction on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it's really metamorphosed over the years. Um, number one, I think anything that helps people live a healthier life where they're not going from, you know, in that survival mode of their next fix, I support 10,000%. You know, if you're, if you're on an opioid antagonist or you're on the whatever program, great. Yeah. If that's really what you're doing. However, I don't believe that the quote unquote, like you're saying, safe supply, when it's being administered in environments that aren't safe and aren't supportive, that it, it it's not having it's not having the outcome that it was designed and intended to have um mm. if you have a pharmacist who's going into a supportive housing building where 99 percent of the population are in active addiction and your dealer lives in the building and a lot of the pharmacists are dealers like they're they're as corrupt as most not all of them caveat there but i've seen a lot mm -hmm. um there's is the dealers so to scream and shout that people have a right to have, you know, say their methadone. Yes, absolutely. But to say that it's working in these environments is, is baloney because the pharmacists will come in and that's essentially maybe your first free hit in the morning. It's not curbing their, it's not curbing their use. Um, it's not changing their habits but they're living in environments that breed despair. I I would be high as F all day if I lived in one of those buildings. Like, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, you know, yeah. and I agree with you. I don't think there's any such thing as safe supply. To say yeah. that heroin is safe or that methamphetamines are safe, none of them are safe. Are they safer than what's on the streets? Absolutely. Well, if they were, if it was regulated, you would at least know that you're in fact getting meth and this is how strong it is. And like, just like you look on a yeah. bottle of whiskey, you know, it's 40% and I know that it doesn't have rat poison in it, you know, so th yeah. there is value there, but I worry and, and, and maybe we're getting a bit off topic here, but, uh, but I worry about, um, a, a regulated supply being come becoming commercialized like alcohol is. And then suddenly, and I've said this a thousand times on the show, but then suddenly we have grape flavored meth. And um, it's it, you know what I mean? And you're and you're buying it at 7-Eleven and it's and you can choose from a, every color of the rainbow and, and things like that. And and I would I would really struggle with that, um, raising my kid to to go out into a world where where these substances are just freely available to whoever decides one night. Oh, maybe I'll try this for some reason. You know, we don't want to reduce barriers or reduce the perception yeah. of harm. You know, so but tell me, like, with your experience, oh, I'm spitting all over the place now. I'm That's excited. All. <laughs> <laughs> with your experience working in these supported living environments, did you see any benefit at all to you? You mentioned a pharmacist coming in. Tell us more about that. So when I took over the supportive housing building, I didn't know how naive I was. Like, I thought I knew quite a bit, and then I realized how much I actually didn't know. Um, <laughs> what a shit show. So it turned out that my front desk full-time staff member, she was a dealer in the building.
So maybe from a harm reduction perspective, that's a good thing. Because when she was dealing to them, then she knew to watch to see if they'd overdosed. Like, the cognitive dissonance that I went through running this place was mind-blowing. Um, so when the pharmacist would come in, I kind of found this out by accident. One of the pharmacists kept asking me where one of my staff members was. And I'm like, they're off right now. <laughs> they were they were off for good reason. Um, but they wanted to speak to that person specifically. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And then another staff member came in and asked where this staff member was. And then I found out it was because the pharmacists were giving them kickbacks. So any residents that they could sign up on a daily witness, not even ones that needed it, were getting the kickback. So they were getting the cash that the pharmacists get for witnessing a daily carry. Oh, hang on now. Now let's break this down. I know I know the language you're using, but let's like, what are we talking about here? We're talking about daily methadone. So the pharmacist would come Correct. and deliver methadone and do the, and the do the daily witness in the building? Yeah, but oftentimes they didn't even do the witness. They would just leave it at the front desk yeah. and then staff would sell it. Whoa. Or take it. Huh. Yeah, whoa. Yeah. So what, what, how did you deal with that when you took <laughs> over? Here we go. Here, put you on full screen. There, go all the way. <laughs> oh. <laughs> See how I'm speechless? It doesn't happen yeah. very often. Yeah. Um, welcome, welcome to Hard Knocks Talks, where we ask the questions that there are no answers to. <laughs> so a lot of times, a lot. Of, okay. So in the beginning of our conversation, you and I talked about, and you'd asked me like how it affected me being in recovery. Um, and working in this environment. I think oftentimes, if people are hired, whether they're still in active addiction or not, um, whether they're, you know, they're, they're working or they have a good handle on their mental health, paying someone a wage that's not a living wage, putting them, employing them in a building that is it, it, it's abusive and it can be unwell. really violent. It's unwell, yes. Um, and then expecting them not to find other ways to make income mm -hmm. when we're still in that mindset. Like when we're in addiction, mm -hmm. you know, you, you would you would steal from your grandmother. Um, and yeah. so I saw these things as these are survival skills. Yeah. These are skills that these individuals have learned and they're literally trying to survive. And so while, you know, there had to be conversations and tried to have some sort of like coaching and disciplinary action around that, you know, it's really an opportunity to look at these aren't bad people. Mm -hmm. These are people who are literally trying to survive. And, you know, I'll speak for myself. I think people who are in addiction, when we're in addiction, we're master manipulators and our survival skills, like, you know, if the apocalypse comes, we're the ones who are going to make it through. Because and we'll make shit. it through high, too. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, like, we know how to get shit done and we yeah. know how to, like, you know, squeeze the, squeeze the, the, like, the water out of the rock or what have you. Yeah. So, 
it was a lot. So I stayed there for um, close to two years. Um, How did you stay okay? How did you cope? You're on call all the time. Sounds like you're sitting with people who have overdosed or otherwise died waiting for the coroner to show up. You've got police officers saying, I don't want your job. You know, how did you how did you maintain your abstinent lifestyle through all of that? My mental health was not good. It was awful. Um, and I knew it was time for me to leave. Um, I remember one day I was after my mom died and I was in the building and there was this gang member in my building and he had a machete and I started laughing and I'm like, yeah, not today, bud. And I'm like, holy shit. Okay. You've crossed the line here because you should be terrified. Um, mm -hmm. and I wasn't, I was, I become completely apathetic. My, you know, you hear of like em compassion burnout or empathy burnout. I was, I was burnt out and I recognized that I had become people that I was critical of when I first got in this industry, you know, making comments like, you know, this person doesn't care. They shouldn't work in this industry. And all of a sudden I was like, holy crap, that's becoming me. And it wasn't because I didn't care. It was because I'd reached, I'd repeat, like I just reached this peak and I knew that If I saw one more thing that I couldn't unsee, you know, there was, there was a couple of deaths that, you know, I, I had attended to that were really bad and I couldn't sleep. Like when I went to bed at night, like I was scared to, like, I was honestly scared to close my eyes because I saw the things that I saw. So we're talking about deaths as a result of a behavior rather than an overdose. Mm -hmm. Okay. Both. Um, so I knew I had to go. I knew I was at, I, I knew I was at that tipping point where like, I'm going for a grippy sock vacation if I don't get the heck out of here. Like, I, like I'm done. <laughs> I've but, never you heard know, it called that before. Know, like the detox socks or the, the yeah. psych socks. Like, I, I was yeah. heading there, my friend. Yeah. Um, and it's still, you know, I think for frontline workers, we have to be cognizant of the fact that, I mean, my autonomic nervous system is still a complete shit show. Um, mm. You know, it's a process. And we become, I, be, I became so used to, from my personal life and my professional life, living in this hyper state of fight or flight, that when I left, when I started with the company I work for now and there's all these normal people, I felt like that segment on Sesame street, you know, it's like one of these things doesn't belong. I was like, I'm going to have to set some shit on fire. Like, what, like, this, what am I like? I was so bored. Um, and missed that like adrenaline rush and it's not healthy. Let's, let's, let's make a little survival guide you and me right now. Okay. So you're, yeah. you're, you're doing this work now. You, it sounds like you advocate for service providers whenever you can. Uh, you have yes. conversations that shed light on, on how hard it is to be a service provider. And in fact, I think it was earlier in the show, you said there's a whole new um, generation of trauma coming up on the front lines at the, yeah. at the 
for social for for service providers how do yeah. we get through how do we get through you say someone's watching right now and they're in it they just watched one of their clients pass they had to sit and watch while the coroner came they had to do all these things what can we do what do how do we get through so I think, you know, one of the things that we run into in this industry is much like, you know, how men were brought up, you know, toughen up, shake it off mm -hmm. um, in this industry. You know, it's 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 a very isolating industry to work in, because if you're not surrounded by these people, meaning having the same job as you in your personal life. You know, when you try and talk about your experiences, the, the, they'll say things to you like, we'll just quit. Or, you know, if it's that hard, then don't do it. Or I could never do your job. So, do you ever scare people away? Oh, God, yeah. Like, no wonder I was single. Like, you come home from work and, you know, they ask you how your day was. Oh, well, you know, this person died and this person got stabbed. Like, nobody knows how to respond to yeah, 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 yeah. There was like, I actually had a collection of machetes in my drawer. Um, so I, I'm not even kidding you. I, I, I don't know why that's funny to me, but here. It's a little bit funny. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would say if, if your loved one is working on the front lines, the best way to support them is just say, I'm here for you and let them. Let them speak about the experience. You don't have to know the right thing to say. Um, just be there because we need to decompress. We need to sort of, everybody responds and reacts differently. So how someone decompresses is different mm -hmm. for every person. Um, you don't have to have the right thing to say. Just create a safe space where we can talk about it. Um, lots of great resources out there, like the mobile response team. They're big here in BC. Um, this team for is service phenomenal. providers yes okay so they come out they will come out and do a debrief with um staff they're available 24 7. these people that do these jobs like i always ask them like who's supporting you because they get called out when the staff have dealt with the most traumatic events um they're rock stars mm -hmm. a lot of organizations here in bc um you know, there's there's a gentleman, Steve Farina, who works for the fire department, and he started this whole campaign around firefighters and, you know, um, the suicide rate and, you know, men and women expected to be tough. If we come home and we say it's been a hard day, don't tell us to quit because we're likely already wanting to quit. Mm -hmm. But there's something that tells us we're not done yet support us tell us you believe in us tell us you know you're here for us just maybe give us a hug you know mm -hmm. um i don't think at this point honestly i don't think it's a i don't think it's an industry that anyone can really work in long term and come out okay especially through this opioid crisis like and it's not getting better it's getting worse um you know, especially, I mean, everywhere, but Vancouver, the numbers are going up and up and up. They're not going down. Mm -hmm. Our system is broken. And I think everyone's just exhausted. You know, people are becoming apathetic to what's happening because it's just like nothing is working.
And so we need to rally around these people. Mm -hmm. And from the service provider's position. So um, if you were sitting, like I mentioned um, before, yeah. you're sitting uh, with someone who's just had a, a horrific experience and yeah. and you have had you have sat through that position like what what would you tell them like what would you what would you say that they should do to my staff say yes someone's freaking out okay. you you have a staff member um they are twisting out because they just saw something very challenging they don't know what to do yeah. what do you tell them do this this and this what do you tell them i always told my staff that just because this is your job it doesn't undermine how effed up this is and how this is something no one in day-to-day -day life would expect to encounter. And even when you hear stories that you're gonna encounter these things, it doesn't, you, you can't emotionally prepare yourself for some of the things that you're going to see. So I would never tell someone to shake it off. I would never tell them to toughen up because you're re-traumatizing them. Then you're making them feel like they're crazy because this empathetic soul who came in to help isn't tough enough to take the fact that they just saw someone who's been in their room for 24 hours and it's 40 degrees outside and the body's bloated. Like that's not something, that's not something your body can and your brain can process, especially right away. Um, I would suggest that they take time for some people that means you know taking a couple days off reaching out i would always reach out to the mobile response team and let them know this is what my staff has been through can you please be available for them to debrief because they're trained to deal with trauma mm -hmm. um, we can't expect our friends and family if they don't work in the industry to know how to deal with us when we've been through trauma mm -hmm. for some people sitting at home alone um, especially if, you know, say they're in 12 step, um, isolating for them, that's, they've been told that that's not the right thing to do. So I would say, you know what, if you want to come to work, you can just hang out with me. Um, humor, there's, there's videos circulating around of me of wearing men's, um, disposable underwear on top of my pants and doing dances in the hall while, you know, there's gang members. To diffuse, you know, I have a pretty effed up sense of humor and sometimes cracking a joke or making fun of myself or acting like a jackass mm -hmm. is the best way to sort of like defuse what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, That's absolutely. All. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. We'll let you go. Take care, my friend. If you got anything out of this episode today, uh, give us a Give us a like on YouTube. Uh, if you're not yet subscribed to us on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. Hit that bell. We go live every Friday morning, every Sunday evening. You can also hit us up on Apple Podcasts if you don't want to listen or if you don't want to sit and watch us for an hour. That's all I got for you this week. Take care, my friends. Say, hey, this is Hard Knocks Talks. <laughs>